Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, story time. Story time number 145. Uh, this wow. week, yeah, 145 of these that we have done, wow. uh, <laughs> which is quite impressive. That's Barrett Sunderason on the other end of the line from Adelaide. I'm coming to you this week from Rome, the eternal city, because, uh, because final word doesn't have a holiday. I may be on holiday, but the show never sleeps. The show is ever waking. The show is remorseless. The show is relentless. The show may haunt you in your dreams. Be warned as you start the final word and a good whatever time of day it is to Barrett Sundarason. Uh, good afternoon, I guess, or good morning to you. I know you're woken up uh, very, very early for uh, this show and uh, yeah, I can't believe you're in Rome just sounds like a fantasy town to me. I've never been to Italy. Actually, I've been to no European country which doesn't play cricket, as you know. Uh, but yeah, Rome just seems special. And I know you sent me a picture from uh, your balcony the other day. And there was no Pope. You know, you think there's a balcony in mm-hmm. Rome, there'll be a Pope waving at you. But uh, that kind of disappointed me. But uh, hey, I can, I, can, I can picture you as the Pope someday. Well, they do. Italy does play cricket. They do have a team and they're, they're building towards no, they do, things they do, as, they, they, as they go. Indeed, but um, but out, yeah, out of yeah, the, yeah. The, the places where it's most popular. I did drop by the Pope's gaff yesterday and saw the balcony in question. Just, oh. just mind-bending stuff walking around this city where everything, yeah. everything is ancient. Like there are so many yeah. amazing old buildings that there that nobody even notices most of them because it, it's like, oh, sure, there's the Colosseum and there's the Vatican, but but there mm. are also thousands upon thousands of others that are just some normal place on this normal street corner that everybody walks past without even looking because <laughs> because why would you bother? Because there's there's so much other stuff. You know, I've, I've never been in a place where you're so surrounded by the the living history of it it's an extraordinary thing yeah uh, it's a bit like uh, walking around kensington and where everything's uh, bradman i guess <laughs> that's the closest i can come up with living in adelaide but uh, where uh, I, I don't know whether bradman history uh, trumps roman history i guess it does to a lot of australians doesn't it mm-hmm. uh, uh, especially on, uh, especially if you are in Adelaide, like I've always told you, everyone from the chimney sweep who one day told me, you know, the dawn, Sir Don made me a cup of tea. He's never made a cup of tea for every, anyone else, which I was a little surprised by, but I was like, oh, great. I'm sure he made one for Lady Jessie at some point in her life. Uh, I would not put the, that past the dawn. But yeah, it's it, it was funny, right? Even traveling around England, you speak of Roman history, I saw a massive uh, statue of Constantinople in the city of York, which I did not expect to see because from what I heard, he was on tour or something, and the, which is when he was named Roman Emperor. It must be like someone on vacation when uh, they find out that they've been named as the next test captain or maybe Mitchell Marsh when he was named the next T20I captain a few days ago. Uh, that's the closest, uh, you know, I can think of anyone feeling like Constantinople on his tour to York um, some 500 years ago or maybe even more. I'm sure more. <laughs> I think I think it was a bit more than 500 years. Um, <laughs> well, sorry, they didn't teach us all this in India. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I can't remember being, I don't think we were taught a lot of Roman history at, at high school in Australia either. It was much more about, you know, the provenance of Walsing Matilda and all the rest of it. But I, I can't yeah, actually course, show yeah. people off the balcony on the video because I'm recording this on a rooftop where the signal is so um, mm. erratic that we're going, we're doing this on a voice only 
Cool. So I can't actually show you what's happening, but somehow if we if we manage to make a video version of this, I'll I'll see if I can throw in some bits and pieces from touring around Rome. But anyway, this week, Rome's all about history. Storytime's all about history. Storytime 145. Indeed. We're going to have a, a look at some cricket tales and we're going to do so via the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. I don't know what Nerd Pledge is in Latin. I could look it up, but I don't know if they had a word for nerd. Maybe like the word for scholar might be, you know, scolare. Uh, maybe like fiat. I think the word yeah. fiat, mm. like the car that make is like, is like a deal, like a contract, something really? like that. Ooh. Could be. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I drive a fiat, so maybe uh, that's what it is. Yeah. Maybe it's a nerd pledge car, a fiat 500. <laughs> nerd pledge works like this. Some people who listen to this show decide in the goodness of their heart to support the show. They send in financial contributions that are not just the normal specific numbers. Well, sometimes they are the normal specific numbers, but in a nerd pledge case, they're not. They're a different number and the number relates to cricket. And we have to guess what the number means. It starts like this, a double header. First cab off the rank this week, which comes in from Tom Ford and from Greg upon Thames. The number is two pounds and seven pence. I'm pretty sure they're both in GBP, these numbers. So 207 oh. is the number. It's probably going to have two different answers in this case, but you never know. Uh, Tom Ford sent a clue. In fact, they both sent a clue, but Tom's clue for you, Barat, was this. First time pledger, 207. Uh, growing up in the 90s, my nearest test ground was Edgebaston. Yeah, I saw Tom's pledge and immediately, uh, you know, we spent so many hours, days, months, years, decades working on some nerd pledges, right? And then uh, uh, a, a lovely, uh, you know, outswinger comes along, which you just want to uh, kind of just uh, defend, just push into the covers. I was going to say it was a half folly that I want to put it through the covers for four, but uh, that would sound a little rude to Tom, wouldn't it? So as soon as I saw this, you know, nearest test ground, Edge Bass in 90s, 207, it came to me immediately. Nasser Hussein's 207 in Birmingham. It just had to be that, uh, right? The, the 90s, we've heard a lot uh, about England in the 90s. There have been documentaries made. I'm sure someone has, Tim McMore has written four books about it with four different authors, co-authors. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> hey, he wants to do, do, do a book with me as well. So oh, yeah? it's almost like, I know this is not the Tim Wigmore show, but you know, it, it's like, you know, there has to be some wrestling. So he's like the classic tag team wrestler, but someday in life, yeah. he's going to win a solo title. That'll be quite the day. You know, when the tag team wrestler turns solo, I, I don't know, I see him winning a world title, but an intercontinental title at best. But uh, sticking with Tom Ford and Nasser Hussain, yeah, I mean, the 207 he made in the first Ashes test of 1997. Every time there was a rain break, uh, we saw clips of uh, this famous innings and famous partnership. Uh, it was the Hussein Thorpe partnership uh, during that test, which set up uh, a pretty famous test win for England, which uh, didn't happen very often, did it, uh, during the 1990s, either home or away. Uh, and there was hope all around uh, all around England, and I'm sure it's an innings that Nasser Hussain has spoken about a lot. And before we even get into it, uh, I was just looking up some numbers. It was peak Nasser Hussain, because exactly a year prior to that, uh, he makes his first ever Test 100 against India. And I remember watching that uh, series very closely. It was the arrival of Ganguly and Dravid. He makes that 100, um, and... Uh, you know, his average for the second time in his career goes about 40. And it stays at 40 through nine, the, uh, through the 1996 uh, summer. Uh, they go to New Zealand where they've won this famous series. So obviously there's hope around England finally doing something of note in an Ashes series at home against Australia. They hadn't won since 1985. Obviously they would have to wait eight more years after this series to win any Ashes series, but especially the one at home. Um, and he he continues on that form from 1996. Uh, it doesn't get 100 in New Zealand. I think it's Alex Stewart and Graham Thorpe who do well there when they win that series 2-0. But uh, Nasser Hussain continues his form, makes a couple of crucial half centuries. And then when he hits his 207, his average goes up to 43. And he's counted amongst the best top seven, top eight test batters in the world. And when you think of Nasser Hussain, you don't think about those numbers or th anything close to that, right? I mean, no surprises that uh, Nasser Hussain at the end of this inning said, for one week, I felt like I was Tendulkar and Lara because he was 
I don't think anyone outside England was speaking of him in the same breath. And Nasser Hussain will be the first guy to confess to that. But it just felt like he was hitting peak form. And this is a time when, yeah, Graham Thorpe had established himself in the middle order. But apart from Thorpe, I mean, you had Stewart and Atherton mainly opening. Then Mark Butcher comes into the come to the picture. But they tried so many others, right? From uh, John Crawley would be in and out. They tried Mark Ramprakash would be in and out. Uh, they would try the likes of Jason Gallion up and down the order. They would throw in a few all-rounders, but nothing clicked. But it felt like they were forming a core middle order. Yeah. And Nasser Hussein's form, I think he makes another Test 100 in this series as well at Leeds. But this double 100 uh, just kind of... Uh, he cements himself as as a key middle order batter, and uh, I mean, who would have known that he would captain the side within two years? And England cricket would like have this uh, a fall of the precipice after this double hundred. But uh, this seemed to be peak Nasser saying he, and then I think in, within or less than twelve months, his average drops below forty. And it finishes up at 37, what he played for another seven, eight years. But he never, ever even came close to getting to 40. So this is peak Nasser Hussain. And for the first time, or maybe the only time in his career, he gets the better of Shane Vaughan, who had tormented him um, uh, historically. So so he gets the better of Shane Vaughan. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a great partnership. And I think uh, the funny thing well, is well, that he, he was reading he, about... Because he hasn't played Vaughan to that point has he from memory so that's his that's his introduction to Warren and then and then after that it becomes such a that's right yeah. after that actually he, he masters him and then starts struggling against him which yeah. he went the other way his career yeah you're right because Warren had the wood overs Alex Stewart throughout his career uh, and most other English batters. But you're right. I mean, Nasser saying. But I think I've heard some of his interviews where he speaks about how he was really... I mean, he's always been a nervous starter. But just the cons- like the, the the challenge of facing Shane Vaughan, he it, you know, eaten up himself in his own head uh, leading up to this test. But but he does this. But I was just reading up about what was happening around England at that time. So there was the whole uh, a mad cow disease pandemic of sorts. And uh, there was big worries that uh, it could spread from the mad cows to the sheep and the farmers were really anxious about what was happening around the country and uh, you know and we want as we realize now while we were in England the only time they seem to look towards cricket for hope is either when the, the ashes are on or when everything else in the country is not functioning well I mean right now we experience what rail strikes teacher strikes my thumb is still broken all because the NHS doesn't work and I think so there was there was this the whole build-up to the Ashes, uh, like I said earlier, having won in New Zealand, could we finally have a team which could uh, challenge this Australian team? And, you know, on day one, Mark Taylor chooses to bat first. Darren Goff bowls out of his skin. And I remember watching that spell, uh, at the replay of that spell, sitting next to Damien Fleming, and who did not make that tour, but he had some fabulous stories about Michael Bevan, especially when he gets out. And Greg Blewett, who gets out of a no-ball, and apparently Darren Goff walks up to uh, Nasser Hussain and says, that's all right, I'll get him out of the next ball. Uh, and he does that. And they reduce to 8 for 54, and then Shane Warne makes a 50 or 40-yard runs, takes them beyond 100. England lose a couple of wickets early, but then the Hussain-Thorpe partnership starts. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, what they put on well over 200 runs, uh, and they give, uh, I think, 288. And they give themselves a huge lead. And this is peak Mark Taylor should go phase of Australian cricket, right? He's out of form. He struggles in the tour games leading into this first Ashes test and then gets out cheaply after having chosen to bat first. People talk about Nasser Hussain at the Gabba in 2002-03, but nobody talks about Mark Taylor in 97 because they won the series eventually. And also maybe he got runs in the second innings. But imagine that blunder. First day of the series, you choose to bat first under cloudy skies, and you're 8 for 54. (laughs) A few captains could have come back from that. And especially at a time when you are under pressure, your place in the side is in question. You haven't scored runs in a long time. Uh, But then, yeah, I mean, it makes up for it... uh, that huge partnership with Greg Blewett, uh, but Australia playing catch up to such an extent because of the Nasser Hussein innings and the partnership he has with Thorpe. That I think the three hundred plus runs behind. So despite the partnership, uh, even once it ends, they're in a good position, three hundred and twenty or for one or one for three hundred and twenty. Then wickets fall. Darren Goff takes more wickets, and then uh, that wonderful nineties pairing of Robert Croft and Mark Elam <laughs> come together and uh, take five or six wickets to, in one spell, and Australia lose. And there's like hope all around England and uh, you know everybody thinks this is it this is, I finally found a way to 
you know, overcome, overcome Australia at home. As we all know, it wasn't to be. But just reading some of the interviews about that innings from people who were part of it, like Ian Healy and uh, others, what I really found interesting was considering we just finished speaking about Beergate <laughs> and people are still talking about Beergate. I, I also heard uh, from a, a very close source to ours, Jeff Lemon, who was on this tour, that uh, apparently Daniel Vittori called uh, Brendan McCullum a few times. And Brendan McCallum kept cutting his call. Like when Australia realized that, well, uh, we they can, we need to find out what's happening. And now we're hearing Steve Smith and Travis said all speak about the same things. But the, Daniel Vittori tried calling his former teammate and then Brendan McCallum kept cutting his call, maybe because he was in the middle of a speech or whatever. So that was the, the, the latest information to come out through from Beergate. <laughs> but when you, when you read about what Ian Healy had to say about this particular game, uh, uh, he apparently said that uh, at the end of the game, England started celebrating wildly. Like, you know, the game finishes during the day, not very late in the evening. So we would have loved covering the test match. We would have got the evening off. Uh, but um, uh, Ian Healy says that oh, he, they looked over the balcony and they saw England were going batshit crazy. And to quote Ian Healy, he said that we thought the English players were a bit too arrogant. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> like, you know, uh, here we are 26 years later, 26, yeah, 26 years later, hearing the same thing that the England players were a bit too arrogant. But this was not the end of the series. So it makes sense that, you know, there was no exchange of players in terms of dressing rooms and beers and uh, whatnot. And much like what England would say in 2005 after the uh, drawn test in Trent Bridge, wasn't it? Where they felt like, oh, when we saw Australia celebrate, we thought we'd, we were going to win the series. The Similarly, Australia, even though yeah. Australia lose... Old Trafford, that's right. Uh, the Trent Bridge was the close finish. Yeah, uh, the uh, run chase. So yeah, I mean they they uh, the, the Australian players apparently looked over the to the other balcony and felt like, the, like you know, well, okay, uh, they're celebrating. The, the, and this is a six match series as well. Don't forget. Yeah. So they're celebrating a bit too hard after one win. Uh, I think we have them here, and, and how right they were. I think by the time we got to the oval for the last test, it was three one down. Well. You talked about interviews with Nasser Hussain. We did one with Nasser Hussain on this show. So let's hear from the man himself about the the day, the couple of days when he made the 207 against Australia. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, the night the night before, because I hadn't seen Warden that much, I literally, we were at the Swallow Hotel in Birmingham, I literally ordered a chicken, a curry takeaway, uh, chicken tikka masala, chicken biryani in my room from the local takeaway curry house, put video of Warren on and literally watched a video. In the old days, it was just a VHS, none of this <laughs> stuff now the players have on their iPad or whatever, and just sat there watching delivery of delivery after Shane Warren, mainly not the wickets, because obviously you don't want negative thoughts. You have to have a look at the wickets, but the odd person who had played him well, etc. Um, and then the next the next week was just surreal, to be honest. I mean, England A were on the up, mm-hmm. if you remember. They'd beaten them three nil in the white ball in the white ball series with um, bless him Ben Hollyoke um, bursting on the scene. So we felt we were on the up, and then Goffey and Caddy bowled them out on that sweaty, hot, humid day when it swung around. And then we were right; it was a low-scoring game. And then me and Thorpey got together, and I have to be honest, and very, very rarely do I say this about myself, but it was the only day, the only innings that I felt like what it must be like to be Sachin Tendulkar or Brian Lara or Virat Kohli or whoever. That they talk about being in the zone, they talk about seeing it like a football, not hearing Warren sledges or McGrath sledges, Steve War at Gully. It was just like everything clicked and everything was hit in the middle of the bat and everything that you'd worked for all your career um, about your timings of your movement and not falling over the crease and not wor- worrying about Warren's drift and trying to flick him through mid-wicket. That was the danger shot. You never thought about all those things. It was an absolute clear-headed innings that I'd just never repeated either, you know, before or after. And to do it with arguably one of my best friends in the game in Graham Thorpe at the other end made it doubly special. And then to go on and win the test was like the perfect week for me. It was just, it, it, it was, I never batted like that. However many times I try to repeat it and have the same curry takeaway and the same mental sort of checklist, you, you, I never played like that again. But I, I'm pleased I did it against that Australian side 
in a, in a sort of winning test match. So the other 207, uh, well, it also goes to a captain and uh, a great player with the bat who maybe had a few more of those good days than Nasser Hussain had. But it comes in from Greg upon Thames who sent this clue. He said, I loved hearing mention of the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre in a recent story time. My pledge of 207 is the start of the GCCC story. So I spent some time looking at the history of the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre, um, which, <laughs> which, which was just a cricket centre before Greg Chapel came along. He gets involved with the joint in 1977. And, yeah, he's Greg Chapel, turn on debut and all of that. But, but by 1977, he's, he's moved to Queensland. He's the Australian captain. He's, he's the biggest name in the team by that stage, really, because the, you know, that sort of previous yeah. generation have started making way, his brother among them. And he's a big name. So they want to have his name on the centre for credibility. And at that point, it's more of a coaching enterprise. They've got this big mm. sort of warehouse shed out in Albion, which is where the, um, the, the, the Allen Border fields of centre of excellence and all the rest of it is mm. now. Um, so Albion still has that um, very strong cricket link. And the place branches out to become more of a sales enterprise later mm. um, and to become the place for cricket kit. So... I guess there's a commercial involvement. I don't know what the sort of financial ramifications were, but remember this is at a point in time when Australian players are being paid very little. He's mm. moved to Queensland because he could get a better job in Queensland. There was an insurance company offering him a higher paid job than he had in Adelaide. So <laughs> it was for a better day job, not for a cricket uh, job, if that makes sense. And so I suppose if there was a, a bit of extra money to be made by association with this sports store slash training centre, that was that would have been a very attractive offer at the time. So it expands the Greg Chapel portfolio, I suppose, as he tries to get some sort of return from his profile and, and cricket career. And, I mean, things don't go so well from 1977 on because he goes to England, loses the Ashes as captain and then before too long quits to play World Series cricket and that's when the real pay packet comes in via Packer but he's still got this link with the cricket centre at that time. So 207 for Greg Chappell though, I mean Greg Chappell batted 27 times against Pakistan that doesn't know, mm. that's a stretch, mm, made 600s. Yeah. Okay, how's this for a niche stat? Cumulatively in the second test of a series, of any and all series that he played, he hit 207 yeah. fours. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that should be the one, but that, I know it won't be. <laughs> that should be the one. If, if, that, if that is the one, I will um, be extremely surprised. There's a one-day international loss in 1979 when Australia make 207 for nine. Greg Chappell makes 92, mm. gets named player of the match despite being on a losing cause, which is even rarer probably in one-day cricket than it is yeah, in test cricket. Yeah, back then especially, yeah. Yeah, so England, yeah. England chase it down with an over remaining, that 207. But it brought me the number 207 to Wellington in 1974 when Ian Chappell is the captain, when they famously both make hundreds in both innings in the Wellington Test. So at that time, that was the only occasion of two players from the same team making twin tons in the same match. And I, I'm pretty sure right. the only instance since then is in the UAE in 2014 when Azhar Ali and Misbah Ulhaq both did it against Australia when Misbah made the fastest 100, what was at the time the yeah. fastest 100, which is a, a match that, that Adam and I talk about quite often as, as a, mm. a, a, yes. a, a formative early one for us. So... The link here is that Ian Chappell makes his 100 in the first innings from 207 balls, and that's the first of mm -hmm. the four centuries that the brothers will make in the match. He gets out for 145. Greg keeps going. He's 162 not out at stumps, and then by lunch the next day, he's 247 not out. They're scoring at nearly five and over. It's only day two, and apparently there's a disagreement at the lunch break uh, where Greg says, look, with a lot of time left in the match, let's just mm -hmm. keep batting. I can make a triple 100 here. And Ian says, nah, declaring. Out you go. <laughs> Classic. Classic. <laughs> he goes, nah, let's try to bowl them out. Nah, mate, nah, yeah. It's only halfway through day one. What happened to bat once, bat big? Like, yes, they already had more than 500, but still. Um, yeah. you, could, you could put another session or two into the bowling side. So 
Ian says, no, no, let's let's go out and have a bowl. And it pans out as Greg expected. It's a flat one. New Zealand face 169 overs. They get pretty close to parity on the first innings. And so Australia bat again and it ends up being a draw. But to that point, there have only been 10 triple centuries in test cricket. So Greg would probably hmm. be pretty annoyed to not get the chance um, <laughs> to add another at 2.47, not out and cruising. He's not to know, but Lawrence Rowe will make the 11th triple 100 in Bridgetown four days later, four days after wow. Greg is denied the chance to do it. Lawrence Rowe <laughs> goes on and makes his famous triple 100. So only 10 of them to that point. Um, fair, fair reason to be annoyed at his brother, I suppose. But what he doesn't know is that it sets up the opportunity for an even more rare achievement, which is hmm. twin tons... Not just by players on the same team, but a pair of brothers. I think brothers, I think it's pretty yeah. safe to say that that will never happen again. Like that's it's so like yeah. twin tons are so unusual. Um, so, yeah, true. So Glenn Turner for New Zealand makes twin tons a week later against Australia in Christchurch. So there are three mm. sets of twin tons in that series. But but it's so unusual for any one player to do it, let alone two players in the same match to do it. That the idea that siblings will go out and do it again seems pretty far-fetched you know sam curran and tom curran or something aren't going to be making twin tons in a test match uh, so so yeah. maybe greg chapel should be grateful that he didn't get the chance for a triple because that remains his <laughs> highest score for the rest of his career i mean the only thing only pair of brothers i can think of might have come close is andy flower and grand flower because i do know that there's one test match where they did make hundreds in the same innings. But yeah, I mean, not twin tons. Andy Flower makes twin tons only once uh, or twice, doesn't he? There's that famous test against South Africa. And I think in Delhi, uh, yeah. he makes twin tons. But yeah, yeah, we, we don't see too many uh, batting brother pairs these days, do we? Funnily enough, right? Like, yeah, they're more Steve, Steve Waugh mixing. makes his twin tons when Mark's out of the side, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, and they have, they don't bat, I mean, they bat, they have partnerships for sure, but... Uh, There's the one the against the West one Indies in, in where the, they both make hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the only one that comes close to it, yeah. But mm. twin turns for brothers, it's quite some next level, yeah. So, but but the, the caveat here is that 1977 is not when the cricket centre starts. It starts with a more uh, modestly celebrated cricketer a few years earlier, Peter Philpott, the leg spinner who passed away a yeah. couple of years ago, set up yeah. the centre in 1973. So I did a lot of looking for a Peter Philpot number around 207. It's not his cap number, which is 234. There was nothing in his figures that I could find that was 207 related. So if anybody has a Peter Philpot link for me for a 207, feel mm. free to contact the show and let us know. But I will note that the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre, after its renaming, became a big success story. It still has mm. a big store in Albion. There are 10 shops yeah. nationwide. But our number is 207. There are two stores now in Queensland. And what's the phone number dialing code for Queensland? 07. There you go. There's, oh, there's a 207. Wow, well, that's... I thought the previous one was niche, but this, <laughs> <laughs> this is next level niche. But no, that's really good. Yeah, I'm actually going to take that. I think that's exactly what he's aiming for. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely not. But um, but but let me know. Feel feel free to get in touch, Greg, or 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 anybody else. I suppose. I wonder if it's just a Greg link that has Greg upon Thames enjoying Greg Chapel's yeah. work so much. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent, and you're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff. So let's go to our next double header. It is two dollars sixty and two pounds sixty. So the the number is the same. The currency is different for mm. these two. Two six zero. Ian Wollstonehome, who's a re a re up, who's been on the show before, um, mm. and then we have Andrew Gardner, who's a first timer. The two sixty in pounds for Ian Wollstonehome. Uh, that's you first, Barrett. And thank you, Ian, for this. Uh, you know, we often when the, it's um, uh, it's it's wait, the, the the Julio pledge is the one which comes without the. Without it, the clue. No, right? no, it's a, it's a, a Julio pledge is a non-nerd. So it's like if you send $5 because you just want to send $5, then you're yes. not a nerd, you're a Julio. If you send $5 because you want it to uh, uh, amount to 5.00 that somebody averaged in a series, oh. then that would be a nerd pledge. But yeah, so so usually oh, so it's, this is a- it's the round number that's a Julio. All right. Okay. Cool. So I mean, but no. I mean, when we get a nerd pledge which doesn't come with a clue, the first thing at least Adam and I do is look at test cap numbers, and most times we find someone who's like popular, like you know, like 
I don't know, some, someone who we've spoken of earlier or someone who you know everything about. But when I looked up to 60, I came across this unbelievably amazing cricketer called Fred Bakewell, who I'd, I'd heard the name sparkling away at some point, but I never really bothered to know much about Fred Bakewell. And Jeff Lemon and Ian, I was sent on a proper roller coaster ride, just reading up about this man. It's an amazing story, life story. The cricket story itself is, I mean, or the test cricket story itself is, is, it's not great. I mean, he was, he played a handful of test matches for England, made one uh, test hundred, uh, which uh, not many people remember because that's uh, a test match. I'm sure you guys have spoken about a lot because that's the Father Marriott test match uh, where he takes all those wickets. And we've, how often have we mentioned Father Marriott in the last couple of years, ever since Scott Boland broke onto the scene. Not not anymore. I think Scott Boland and Father Marriott have parted ways in the last six or so months. Uh, but that's that that's the hundred he makes. But uh, you know, Fred Bakewell was known for having one of the more eccentric stances uh, of his time, where it said that both his feet used to kind of point towards mid on. So the mirror image of a Shivnarayan Chandrapal, if you think about it, right? Or Shivnarayan Chandrapal is. No, actually, sort of like Shivnarayan Chandrapal, but even weirder because his right yeah. leg was turned towards mid-on. But whoever watched him bat, uh, he played most of his cricket for Northamptonshire, all his cricket, made w- well over 10 seasons, um, made 1,000 runs uh, in eight of those uh, calendar years uh, in the county championship. But apparently when his bat came down, though, everything was in order. Much like Shivnarayan Chandrapal uh, right. or even George Bailey or even Tejnarayan Chandrapal for that matter. He has that slightly open stance doesn't he? So, uh, so that's what he was known for. And uh, this is a very English, uh, uh, I, I mean, a bit I read about him. So there was a period where they felt like he could bat as well as Bradman, which well, I, I don't agree with. I, I don't know. But then because this is mid 30s, you're talking about. So Fred Wake, Bakewell was briefly compared with uh, Don Bradman, mm-hmm. just for his array of strokes, despite the weird stance. But I don't think anybody in Australia would have believed um, any of that. But as fascinating as his cricket stuff is, his life story is even even better. So he's born into a family of uh, seven siblings. His father is a leather maker. I wasn't sure what leather makers were, but one thing I did find out is they didn't make a lot of money, right? Uh, and so he grows up. All his other siblings siblings go into leather making, while old Fred tries uh, his hand at something else, which is not cricket, <laughs> which is robbery. <laughs> so uh, he he is uh, found guilty at the age of 15 of, uh, I think, 15 robbery attempts. Uh, so, you know, one per every year he had lived sure. on this planet. And he gets thrown into what was called as an approved school. So I had to go look up what an approved school was. So, so an approved school is not a juvenile uh, or ju- Jewy prison for for teenagers because he's underage at that point right but it's slightly better because it's got boarding school like feel but obviously it it is for youngsters who have lost their way who sure. you know like old fred uh, have been um, convicted of uh, some sort of crime important like a major crime as well so he's thrown in there in oxford and that's where he discovers cricket and this is not his this is just the first of many uh, times we'll hear about fred bakewell and him la- ending up in court but this is before he even gets to cricket. So he learns cricket while he is in this school uh, where, uh, you know, he there are nets there. He starts playing there. And very soon after that, he catches the eye of uh, some people in Northamptonshire. They're like, oh, this guy has talent. He has a lot of shots that he can play. Uh, so he's promoted quickly, goes through the ranks, quickly makes his uh, county debut of some seven or eight years after that. Starts off in the middle order, but soon enough becomes an opening batter of renown. So pretty much from the first couple of seasons there, he's spoken of as a potential pick for, for England, but doesn't happen. He has to wait for a little while and then comes his test debut. So and this is at a time also when Lawrence Booth was not alive <laughs> and which when Northamptonshire was was like one of the forgotten counties. They didn't do anything of note. Uh, and the reason I bring up Lawrence right. Booth is I've never met a bigger Northamptonshire fan than Lawrence Booth. And he was celebrating the lives and times of Prithvi Shaw a couple of days ago because Prithvi Shaw made the 244 uh, in, in the London Cup or in the one-day game. Uh, but yeah, so Northamptonshire really wasn't doing much. But it all changed once Fred Bakewell started playing for them so he's as consistent uh, scores for them single-handedly winning matches for them or setting up games so it's not that they get anywhere close to 
you know, winning the county championship, but their performances start improving in the late 20s and early 30s during right. the uh, the Fred Bakewell. And he plays m- many close to Bannon, Bannerman-esque innings for them uh, from the top of the order. Right. Uh, but then in 1931, you know, when Jack, uh, uh, Sir Jack Hobbs retires, yeah. he gets the nod to open the batting. Uh, he doesn't do much against New Zealand. And this is New Zealand on their first ever away test tour. So it's a very young test nation. They've just yeah. come and in, broken into test cricket. So he does doesn't make too many runs, opens in the second test with uh, the great Herbert Sutcliffe and makes a sort of contribution, but he's left out of the third test. So that's the story of his test career. Uh, then he's taken on the uh, tour to India, makes a lot of runs in the tour games against Madras and all of that, gets 180-odd, but then eventually gets replaced uh, in the side by Eddie Painter, who also makes his debut in that third test when I said against New Zealand when he gets left out. So all, all this is happening, but every time he goes back to Northamptonshire, he makes a lot of runs. Like I said, 1,000 runs in 8 out of 10 seasons he plays for them. And life's looking good uh, in, a, in, in a sense for, for him. Uh, at, at one point, he has this... You, know, you spoke about brothers having making twin tons in the same test matches. He has a unique record and it has never happened before. So in a first-class game, on the same day, he has two 100-run opening partnerships because they are made to follow on. So he, him and his opening partner... Put on 100 and then the whole innings collapses. They're made to follow on and they put 100 runs on the board again. Wow. So uh, that's a unique feat. I don't think it's ever been achieved ever since. And I can't, uh, maybe, maybe some like early county season in England somewhere in the north that could potentially be possible. But but yeah, so he, his cricket career, like, and then every time there's an injury or an opening in the English side. So he's he's never forgotten. Like he's not one of those cricketers from the 1920s and 30s who have like a brief run and then like they're gone. He, they keep turning to him. Uh, so even though he plays only six or seven test matches they keep turning to him but then a major event happens in his in his life which is and also kind of cricketing wise he makes a double hundred his last in which nobody at that that point knew that that would be his last innings in first class cricket makes 241 it's a famous innings almost takes them to a famous victory over Hampshire but I think Hampshire hold on and draw the test match uh, draw the uh, draw the county championship match uh, but anyway him and uh, his uh, opening partner Reggie Northway are uh, super chuffed with uh, how that day has gone uh, and uh, they decide to you know start driving home um, at around 11 p.m. so Northway was supposed to be a really good like safe driver says I'll have half a pint the records say I mean Bakewell always said he had only half a point, but who knows, right? Like Bakewell was asleep in the car. So driving back late at night, somewhere near Cape Worth in Leicestershire, the car goes over the humpback uh, bridge, nearly hits a pole, misses it, but then just eventually ends up on the side of the road. The two of them are thrown from the car. Northway dies immediately. And Bakewell's skull is fractured. He has facial paralysis. He breaks his wrist and all sorts of life-threatening injuries. But he survives, but he realizes that he can never play cricket again. Though every year after that, every few months, he comes up and gives interviews saying, oh, I'll be fine, I'll be back, while knowing that he won't be back. And at this time, his life has hit a roadblock as well. He has no money. And then his, and he's also, and you know, our man loved to indulge, like we heard, not from the time he was a little child. So he indulges in adultery. So his first wife, uh, you know, drags him to court, says he's not been fending for his child or nor me. And she drags him to court. And the first time he says, Nana, I'll, it's fine. I'll, it, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll sort something out. So this, nothing happens a few months later he's back in court and this time he wears like a very intentionally wears like a plaster over his arm just to make a point that look i'm not making any money i'm trying to do something i'm not i'm in no position even while he's openly having an affair with another woman who he's already had a child with Mm. and then that doesn't work out either so what does fred do he goes back to what he knew best Robbery. So now he starts like uh, going down a darker path where he realizes the best way to kind of combine cricket and his other passion is to steal from his teammates or, or steal from the dressing room. So every time the batting team is out there in the middle, he starts like picking up their wallets and then he gets caught doing that. He denies doing everything, but then they find like a man's wallet with his identity cards on him. 
So he's dragged to court. But this brings me to my favorite part of the Bakewell story where apparently like when he's dragged to court for the umpteenth time for like, you know, theft, his lawyer says, look, this man is really struggling. We need to help him out. Like, you know, he was a famous cricketer. He played test cricket, was known as the next Bradman, didn't work out. And the judge says, okay, okay. But all I'll say is that's just not cricket. (laughs) I can't believe that was his verdict. Think about it. This is a man who's a... Um, rip, like you know, repetitive offender, and he's in court, and all the judge can say is that's just not cricket. But anyway, from that point on, Fred, Fred Bakewell has many trysts with the law. He survives, and I think he lives well past um, uh, sixty or seventy. But towards the end, nobody really knows what he was up to, except the fact that he never really made any money or uh, didn't do much of note, except getting get into another car accident just before he died. Though he survived that car accident as well. Um, and finally died of a heart attack at the age of 1974. So it, it's this great story about someone who, you know, was known for his cricket, yeah. uh, but had this, uh, but had these great quirky stats about him. The partnership I spoke about, the fact that he made, I think he's one of two or three in the history of the game to have made a double hundred in their last first class innings. But yeah, it's it's sad that we don't speak much more about Fred Fred back Bakewell. I want to. Next time I'm there, I want to read more about, uh, not so much his cricket, but the various crimes that he got uh, involved with. And every time he was brought before the judge and the judge said, that's just not cricket. (laughs) Wow, wow. The twisting tales of Fred Bakewell. And the number of cricketers whose lives are changed by car accidents. So we've we've come up up against it time and time again as we've been doing this show. So, all right, well, next time we're at North Ants, you can... You can start asking some questions about Fred Bakewell um, and whether there's any connection to Enid Bakewell too, who who was a, a, a the champion know, yeah. that we introduced, interviewed a few weeks ago. She was at Knotts rather than North Ants, but who knows? So that's the two sixty for Ian Wollstoneholm, the two sixty for Andrew Gardner. We've both had a bit of a look at this. In fact, our Nerd Pledge sleuth squad has had a look at this mm. as well, uh, and a few others have had a look at. It, I'll, I'll let you detail that part. I'm just going to start with this. The clue was 260 relates to a cumulative feat unlikely to be achieved again. Okay, so I, I mm. thought first cumulative means something over a career or maybe a season, like something like first-class wickets in a season, 260. But we know from this show that Titch Freeman took more than 300 in a season on multiple occasions. Could it be something like total first-class centuries, or not, not centuries because that's 199 for Jack Hobbs, but something like that across a career, say, yeah. um, first-class stats, but it could also be test stats and it could also be ODI stats because all of those, all of those formats mm. are declining in volume generally, certainly for most players. So we, we tend to look at those aggregate records like Joe Root's test runs or whatever and think that nobody in future will be able to challenge what the current players, uh, what sort of this generation of players will finish off as the last ones with big aggregates from Australia, England and India, and then who knows what happens after that. So Jack Hobbs did make the most half centuries, with, but that was 273.50s, not 260. So I did spend some time looking at how I could try to discount 13 of those to get from 273 <laughs> down to 260. Like if we applied some sort of stat filter or category, could we get there? Mm. I note this, he made 13 half centuries against Essex, and Essex, right at the beginning of his career, turned down Jack Hobbs when he asked for a trial at the county oh. when he was a, a young lad of, I don't know, 19 or 20. Mm. And that's how he ended up at Surrey. And he ends up being one of the great champions in the history of the game, 60-plus thousand runs in, in professional cricket and all the rest of it. First professional player to get a knighthood and has um, the, the Hobbsgates hmm. named after him at the Oval and all the rest of it. So Essex would probably have felt a bit burned by that particular decision. So if, if the stat category was the most half centuries made by a player without rubbing it in the face of the club that turned them down when they were early <laughs> in their careers, then it would be 260 that he made. Um, but no, I can't get there in any realistic way. Um, James Anderson is at 256 innings battered in test cricket so he could Mm. get to 260 with a couple more that's not the record for innings faced he's behind only Tendulkar in terms of matches played which is interesting 183 
for Anderson, 200 for Tendulkar. Mm. Could James Anderson play 17 more test matches? England are due to play 17 in the next 12 months. He's not going to play them all, but, you know, if no. he, I mean, if he, if he gets to sort of 195 or something, I mean, it'd be hilarious in, in a way if he... If he breaks the Tendulkar record, I know it's probably unlikely from here, but let's just entertain the possibility. What's the response going to be, Bharat, in India if Oof. James Anderson gets 201 tests played? I think Tendulkar might come back and play another couple of tests. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> or even if he doesn't want to, he'll be forced he'll to be do forced it. forced to return. Uh, but, because it's not as unimaginable as you think right if say Anderson did say this could not be this he doesn't want this to be his last ashes so if he does survive till the next ashes which is what 2024 20, 25 uh oh no in fact 25 26 yeah. you would definitely be closing in on imagine oh, if he does that no in, he'd, he'd breeze in, in past it if he plays for that long but is, is he likely to yeah. play for another two and a half years <laughs> another i could see another year I'd happening yeah, but I mean, who knows, right? With Jimmy Anderson, every time you think he's going, he uh, he doesn't go. So yeah, but I, no, I don't think something will happen. I think BCCI okay. might uh, intervene and put an end to Test cricket. Well, they'll, they'll, <laughs> but they'll no, just, nobody's going past Tendulkar. They'll just discount a couple of series. They'll just say, "Oh, the Zimbabwe debut doesn't count," or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, so he's not second on innings batted, Anderson, because a few players have batted more times than he has. Uh, Steve Waugh, Alan Border, Jacques Callis, Shivnaran Chandapal, Raul Dravid, Ricky Ponting, Alistair Cook, and Tendulkar have batted more times than Anderson. But mm. still, 256 times that he's batted in tests. It doesn't get me to 260, though. So, what did you come up with? Mm. I, I mean, I looked at all sorts, the usual stuff, like uh, went to the various statistics websites, uh, looked at innings, matches, most consecutive matches played, uh, not just in test cricket, but first class cricket, uh, most stumpings. But 260 isn't close to a, a, to any of them. I also looked at played first-class matches on most grounds. And, I mean, nobody's gone close to 260. But it's quite staggering to know that Shivnara and Chandra Paul played first-class matches on 116 different grounds. I mean, he wow. did play a lot of county cricket. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but just to play in one more country than your own... And yeah, I mean, he played test cricket for so many years, but 116 grounds is a lot. I mean, Tom Graveney is number number two at 115 alongside Mushtaq Muhammad. But uh, yeah, and even Rahul Ravid and Tendulkar are level on 112 grounds. But India has so many grounds. If you think of the Caribbean, there aren't so many, at least when Chandrapal was playing. So I don't know how he's managed to get to 116 grounds. So it's obviously that's not it. But yeah, I mean, 260 I looked at fielding records, wicket-keeping records, captaincy records, and most number of games consecutively captained. I mean, there is no number for that. And I even got Andrew Sampson on the job. But we just couldn't come up with... We just, it's, not, it's, it's not like you're trying to find something which is 680. 260, you'd think there would be something yeah. that everything would lead up to. So it's, it, if anything, we have to kind of um, raise our bat and say, uh, well, well done uh, to, you know, uh, to the pledge. We've, we've been beaten in, to an extent by Andrew Gardner, who you said... Uh, is doing this for the first time. So well done, Andrew. You've stumped us to start with. But yeah, 260 doesn't come close. Though, unless he's, he, he, he is a really niche fellow and he, he's talking about Imran Tahir when he played that infamous test match in Adelaide, infamous for Imran Tahir because he went for all those runs. It's obviously known as the Faf Duplessis test, isn't it? Faf Duplessis battling out that draw on the final day and Peter Siddle bowling on one leg and the, how that test match finished uh, and, and, sure. the, and the arrival of Faf Duplessis. I don't think Imran Tahir made a great arrival because cumulatively he did go for 260 runs across both innings, uh, so which could be something that Andrew Gardner is talking about. Maybe he's a South Australian, mighty South Aussie. He was at the ground for that, and he watched it happen in Adelaide. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, I have, I do have happier memories of Imran Tahir. Uh, I've, I interviewed him a couple of times, and he's a fascinating character. But um, he didn't doesn't mention the two sixty runs that he conceded <laughs> in the Test match that much. Mm. I will tell you, though, he does talk a lot about how cricket is his life, and he'll do anything for cricket. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, Imran Tahir in Test cricket. It ne never really worked out yep. beyond a point, right? Like, uh, but he's just uh, had an extraordinary international or T20I career or T20 career, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 though. Yeah, I mean, in a Test match, which is known as this 
battle of attrition to have a bowler mm. go for those many runs uh, is 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 quite quite a stat. And he did bowl one maiden though. Don't forget. I I think this I think this is a good shout though because he he does use the word cumulatively and this is cumulative across a test match, not mm. across a career. But so Tahir, it's it's when David Warner absolutely savages him. In the first innings, yeah. Michael Clarke makes the double hundred, sure, but Warner 119 mm. from 112 balls, and Tahir 23 overs, none for 180 in the first innings. That's eye-watering stuff. He's going at 7.8 mm. runs and over through that first innings, and you know Warner's hitting sixes routinely from mm. him. This is this is sort of early edition super attacking David Warner. Yeah. Um, and then in the second innings follows up with 14 overs, none for 80, so manages to get that run rate down to 5.7 Tahir. But none for 260 is... It's it's not the most runs conceded in a match, but it's the most runs conceded without no, taking course, a wicket yeah. in a match. So as mm. a record for the most wicketless runs, it's hard to imagine a scenario where another bowler is kept on to bowl that much while going for that mm. many across the course of a test match. So, I think I think you're quite close to the pin on that one for Andrew Gardner for 260. All I'll say is, especially in a test match where, I mean, a lesser man than Imran Tahir might have given up because he, you just have to look at the bowling cards for Australia. Rob Quiney, in the same test, mm-hmm. bowled 14 overs, six maidens, went for 16 runs, even though he didn't take a wicket. So yep. <laughs> if Rob Quiney is out bowling you by that margin, yeah, maybe you would uh, want to take a look at your test career or take a, a re-look at your test career. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. All right. I've got a pledge from Tom Ludovic. It is $2.35. It's AUD. He says, long-time listener, first-time pledger. My 235 relates to the first live match my dad took me to. We were so close to the perfect dad joke. Love your work. Thanks, oh. Tom. Now, I'm going to say this. We spent a lot of time with the Nerd Pledge sleuth group, oh. with ourselves, oh. with other people, because we, we first looked at this a couple of weeks ago. So we, we were wandering around at Old Trafford and so on, yeah. asking people, what's a dad joke? Yeah. What's a cricket dad joke? Yeah. And there are many, but it's, it's, it's like when someone says, tell yeah. me a joke. It's hard to think of one. It's hard to pin down what it could be. So mm. 235, I mean, if 235 were a batting score, you might have 2011 against India, England win the toss and bat at Edgebaston. Ian Bell makes his highest test score of 235. England win by an innings. There could be a joke in there about the Ian Bell, Ian Bell not being honoured at mm. Edgebaston by naming an end after him, you know, the, the bell end yeah. kind of thing. David yeah. Lloyd rolled that one out on commentary on SEN during, during the the fifth test. This pledge is in AUD though, so I don't think it's a bell end joke. Mm. Um, where does it, I mean, dad jokes, you know, when I think dad joke, all I think is um, there was a show that you would have missed far out in the early 90s called mm. called Full Frontal that, that had a, it was a sketch comedy thing and they had a segment called Dad's Joke and it was just dads telling, telling dad jokes as in, uh, Dad, I'm thirsty. G'day, thirsty. I'm dad. You know, oh, stuff like that. Those ones, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Or the other, the the alternative being, g'day, thirsty, I'm Friday, etc. So that's <laughs> oh dear. that's like the quality of, yeah. of of joke that I think we're looking for. So I don't know. There's one of our colleagues in the press box who likes to say, "How are you?" And if you say, "I'm good," he says, "I know you are. I won't hear a word said against you." You know, that's a that's uh, that's firmly in the genre. It's a bit. Thirty Rock, Tracy Jordan, the character on Thirty Rock, had a good spin on that when because Americans will say, "I'm doing, I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing good." And he'll say, "Superman does good. You're doing well." And uh, that, that's the kind of caliber yeah. of joke we're looking for here, right? True, true. Yeah. So, so I thought two thirty five, two thirty five. Look, it links back to the Greg Chappell Cricket Centre actually twice. <laughs> um, Nineteen seventy nine in Brisbane, Greg Chappell makes a hundred against West Indies in two hundred and thirty five balls, um, and then well, Peter Philpot almost his cap numbers two thirty four, not two thirty five. So that was looping me back around. I started looking at team uh, scores in Australia. The only two thirty fives in Tests 
that Australia have made were Adelaide 2018 and Adelaide 1971. So I don't think that Tom's going to be either age to have been no. taken to the cricket by oh, his dad. He's really young, no pleasure. Or, <laughs> he's, he or, that was his first test match in 2018. Yeah, or a more advanced one, which is possible. Could have been his first test in 71. Possible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and Australia have only made that score in England and India otherwise. But it is a very ODI score and certainly was for a long time. Mm. So there are quite a lot of ODI 235s within Australia. Maybe the best match is this one. Melbourne, 1998 against South Africa, the first oh, final ooh, in the Tri-Series. Yeah. Australia chasing 242 to win. They're cruising to get there. They need 21. They've got five wickets in hand, four and a bit overs. Michael Bevan's out there on 57, and then he's running back to the non-striker's end trying to hustle back for two, mm. and he's just short. He's, he's about an inch short of his crease trying to race back in for the second, and then Alan Donald turns up the heat. He smashes out mm. Ian Harvey's leg stump. The freak can't freak it after slicing a boundary. Gets an edge behind off Paul Rifle. They need nine off the last over. Long Tom Moody is out there. He's run out trying to get back mm. for a second. Blocker Wilson comes out on strike. Shane warns at the non-striker's end. And this is quite interesting on the replay. So Blocker blocks a ball back down the pitch, as you'd expect. And Shane Warne, I don't know if it's just a sort of instinctive move or not, he reaches his bat out and deflects the ball away from Sean Pollock because Blocker Wilson starts running, right? So he, he just blocks the ball and then sets off. And Warren is a couple of metres out of his crease and there's definitely going to be a run out at one end or the other. And Warren reaches out and knocks the ball away from Pollock. And the South Africans appeal, the umpires convene and then Cronier comes over, Hansi Cronier comes over and withdraws the appeal. Mm. And they say on commentary, oh, what a great piece of captaincy, fine captain. You know, they're all talking up Cronier at the time. But it's pretty dodgy on the replay. It's it's Shane Warne's just sort of stretching the bat out and and preventing Pollock from picking up the ball um, to affect the run out and they're able to get through for the single. Gets Warn on strike. He needs seven to win off two balls so he could tie it with a six, has a big swipe, misses, loses his middle stump and South Africa win. But that's an interesting umpiring one. I mean, another, that's a great try series, right? New Zealand were the uh, other team there. There's this other game from that series that they keep showing on on Fox here, and uh, it ends with South Africa losing a very close game to New Zealand. Uh, you'll remember this one where the game ends with someone gets an outside edge and goes for four. And Bill Laurie's on commentary, and this is all retrospective, right? I mean, who knows what? Like, you know, no, who who ever thought Hansi Cronier would be that guy? And Bill Laurie says something like, "Oh," and they show Hansi Cronier. The thing about Hansi Cronier is you can never see, never make out from his face whether the team has lost or one but that just is what makes him such a great captain now when you look back at it and every time i listen to it i'm like did you know bill did you know you know the earned returns did you know up up in the air yeah but so was there so all i can think with the ending of that game was there some joke about worn hmm. about worn being worn out or or Born in or something like that. If he, if he tied the match with a six, but then speaking of tying the match with a six, that takes us to one more Melbourne ODI. This time it's 1981, and we loop back to Greg Chapel again. Australia make <laughs> 235 for four. New Zealand 229 for eight with the ball remaining. A player injured, so I'm pre- I'm pretty sure that the 11's not going to bat. The last ball due to be bowled. They bowl the underarm ball on Greg Chaplin's instruction, all of that. You know, the story, Brian McKechnie mm. throwing his bat away. Mm. What's the most annoying cricket joke? It might be when your dad walks in and goes, who's winning? Because you, mm. you know that nobody's winning in the cricket until they've won. Yeah. So if it had been a tie, could you have? Could that have been all night? You could have gone, oh, who's winning? Who won if the match mm. was tied? I don't know. I'm not convinced, but that's that's as close as we've got to trying to find a dad joke that relates to 235 and a match that Tom Ludovic went to with his dad as his first cricket match. Brian McKechnie was oh, never oh. going to hit a six anyway, by the way. But anyway, that's no, as good as all, I've got. All, all, I'll, all I'll say in our defence is neither you nor I are fathers. We're not dads. And oh, I can still my dad's dad long, jokes, though. I know, I know, I know. But like, you know, and my dad's long gone and your dad I have met, he's way too smart to make dad jokes. Maybe oh, no, he he's, did, no, he's uh, all over it. He loves dad jokes. He's, he's an absolute oh, shocker. Really? He oh. makes the worst... Like, that's where I get it from. The the terrible puns that people, that I just kind of compulsively oh, blurt true. out that Adam mostly just ignores on the show. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, that's entirely coming from 
from my father. So uh, I, I'm an honorary dad in that sense. Oh, there you go. No, actually, now that you say that, I do remember Christmas lunch, him cracking me up with a couple of them. We've got one more number to come this week. It is $6.28. It's from Rhubarb. It's in Australian dollars. He says, my nerd pledge is 6.282, truncated to 6.28 in patron. (laughs) Well, we love talking about rounding on the final word. So 6.282, Mm. what have you got? Uh, no, we had to go to our sleuth gang again because I, like with the 260 earlier, I looked at all sorts of numbers for 6.282. Um, uh, 62.82, I thought, batting averages, series, on grounds, against opposition, in one matches one, third innings, second innings, first innings, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, nothing popped up. Nobody, the only one is, I think, Bill Ponsford averaged 62.83 at one particular ground. I don't even remember which ground. That's the number of times I looked at it. So uh, we threw it to our uh, special, uh, special forces. Uh, and then while discussing with them, this game stood out where Australia makes 6 for 282 in a, uh, in the Super 6 match, uh, which uh, a lot of people in India would want to forget, uh, at the Oval in 1999. Uh, this is, uh, uh, so 6282, uh, that, that at least configuration, the numbers are in order, the sequence sure. works. So we'll stick with it. I'm just going to go with it just because I remember this game uh, really well. But before we even get to the cricket, how's this? So it was a day when Glenn... Pigeon McGrath, he killed India within the first four overs. He got rid of Tendulkar, uh, Dravid and Azruddin. Uh, this is a series where those four had scored a lot of runs. Uh, this is a World Cup where especially Ganguly, Dravid and Tendulkar gets rid of them. But it was also a day, like I said, Glenn Pigeon McGrath kills India, but also a day where two real-life pigeons met their untimely deaths while oh, the God. match was on. <laughs> so there's this one delivery that Paul Rifle bowls, and, you know, it comes from, like, it's, it's almost like it's, it's made to be a pun, right? Speaking of dad jokes, Pistol delivers a ball, it hits a pigeon halfway, like the pigeon's just trying to fly out, past the pitch. Bad idea, pigeon. The ball hits the pigeon dead on the spot. Later on in that game, Ajay Jadeja is batting. Dead ball too, yeah. And there's another dead ball incident. I mean, in a way, dead pigeon ball, you could say. Where Ajay Jadeja, who makes a hundred, a famous hundred, uh, not out in the in the game in in vain. He hits a ball. It comes off the outside edge of his bat. Hits a pigeon, which is not even trying to cross the pitch. Dead on the spot. So it was a a day for the pigeons at at the Oval. One was. Winning, the other two weren't winning at all in life. But uh, I mean, it's it, it's um, it's a forgotten World Cup for India. Ninety nine, they don't make the semi-finals. Otherwise, uh, I mean, two thousand seven was obviously f- infamous because they were knocked out in the first round and changed world cricket. But ninety nine, I mean, it's remembered for Tendulkar coming back after his dad passed away, making that hundred against Kenya. Uh, for Dravid and Ganguly smashing sixes all over Taunton in that massive partnership. Uh, but then they very unconvincingly got into the Super 6 stages. Uh, they lost to Zimbabwe. They lost to South Africa. So uh, they had, again, like I said, they smashed Sri Lanka, smashed Kenya. Uh, but they ju- uh, just didn't look like a team that was going too far. Or uh, They beat England as well, infamously, for, from an England perspective. Right. They get into this game, first Super 6 game, first ever time we're using the Super 6 format. And uh, Australia makes six for two eight two. Obviously, in India it was two eighty two for six. But anyway, six for two eight two. And uh, the Tendulkar, this was his f- fourth hour. Like he in the previous three one day innings against Australia, he'd made big hundreds. The two really famous ones at Sharjah, the Desert Storm, and then he followed that up later on that year with uh, uh, one forty one uh, against Australia in the first ever ICC knockout tournament, which uh, where India beat Australia and South Africa. People say South Africa have never won an ICC trophy; they have won an ICC knockout. People keep forgetting that tournament. Merv Dillon took wickets. It was a South Africa West Indies final. Who'd have thunk that? Uh, but anyway, so he makes it one forty one, and so all of India's hopes rest on Tendulkar. Glenn McGrath gets him out in the first over. And literally, the moment he gets Tendulkar out, the power went off in half of Mumbai. So we we didn't see the other three wickets. I think Damien Fleming gets Ganguly out and Ravid and Azuruddin fall. So by the time the power came back on, uh, Jadeja was nearing his 100 and uh, he makes 100 not out. Him and Robin Singh have a decent enough partnership. But the game is over. I mean, they're never getting close to that total. And India lose and they... 
they did beat Pakistan a few days later, which they always did. And then they lost to New Zealand and that was it for India in the World Cup. But yeah, uh, but that got me thinking about Ajay Jadeja and just briefly just how he forgotten he is as a one-day player of great renown. So I stopped and we all know how his career ended. Allegations of match-fixing, the five-year ban, which was then reduced. And then he came back and played first-class cricket till 2013. He was captaining Haryana and Tendulkar's last Ranji Trophy match uh, at Lali. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, he, so his career finishes at 29. When he was hitting his peak, or he had already made five 1,359 runs. Only three Indians were ahead of him in the overall, like, you know, run scorers list. He was 23rd on the list when he played his final ODI. So, and, you know, he started, starts opening the batting with Tendulkar's first, Tendulkar's first real major opening partner. They averaged 59.77, which is still the highest for any opening partnership in ODI history to have batted together for more than 20 innings. Uh, but then he becomes this middle-order finisher. The Michael uh, India's answer to Michael Bevan, that innings against Wakar Yunus in the 1996 quarterfinal. And this 100, this is his last 100. He never makes a 100 after this. Uh, sixth of six out of six, or the sixth of the six ODI 100s he makes. But uh, famous for run chases, partnerships with Azuruddin. Well, <laughs> and more importantly, partnerships with Robin Singh. They, uh, like, you know, this is before, like, you know, the era where India were good run chasers. But every time Jadeja and Robin Singh were together, like in this game, uh, hope remained, uh, but uh, not in this case. So that's what stands out for me. But yeah, Jadeja, who knows, 29, he could have easily played fittest man, India's best fielder through the 90s alongside Azuruddin. He could have had a, one of the one-day careers, definitely would have scored more than 10,000 runs, would have played T20 cricket, but it wasn't to be. Uh, Ajay Jadeja well if, if anybody's thinking that the answer might just be 6.282 as say a career batting average I can say that nobody has averaged that in any international cricket format I've got one player in men's T20 internationals who's Aniru Conte of Gambia and four players in women's mm -hmm. T20Is uh, Peculia Agboya of Zambia great name wow. in there um, along mm. with three others and one in women's ODIs, which is a tale I might like to dig into at some time, Sandra Braganza, mm. who played 20 mm. ODIs over the course of a decade and a bit from wow. 82 to 93. She played for India, Bharat, but she also played against right. India. Huh? Oh. Think it, uh, so, oh. 1982, the Women's oh. World Cup, they have an international 11 that contests the tournament where basically players who didn't make the initial teams got sort of scooped up into a, uh, in, into a com composite team. They go winless through the tournament, but she plays India twice and doesn't go easy against her own country. 12 overs, 1 hmm. for 12 in the first game, <laughs> and then 10 overs, 1 for 20. So she bowls 20 overs, 2 for 32 against them in the tournament, and they very nearly beat India in that second match as well. So the right arm, medium pacer... Sandra Braganza, who knows what she might have done had she been playing for India in that World Cup. But um, she did end up playing for India, played Test cricket and ODI cricket as well. For, but for and against India, there can't be too many who've done that. Wow. Uh, maybe the, the early days with, when, when Pakistan breaks away, there'd be, there are a couple of players mm. in there. Yeah, there might have been like a very few, but I think it was more... Pakistanis who uh, or Indians who would have played against Pakistan because there was no Pakistan when India was playing as a sure. country. So yeah, maybe. But I've never heard of Sandra Braganza. You you set me into a rabbit hole. I need to find. Next time we do this together, I'll have yeah. a Sandra Braganza story for you. I promise. Let's uh, we'll we'll, um, we'll see if we can track her down during the World Cup. Hopefully she's yeah, still yeah. with us and find out a little bit more that brings us to the end of storytime 145 thanks for listening if you want to play nerd pledge go to patreon.com slash the final word you can join up there set your amount and all of that helps us keep doing what we're doing including trying to get to india for the world cup in october and november uh, plenty plenty of podcast stuff ahead of us uh, adam's in charge next week i'll be away next week so there'll be a bit more substitute teacher duty and other bits and pieces uh, going around but we've got a, another couple of big interviews in the pipeline as well that we're looking to line up um, there might be a couple more archive episodes and there'll be the regular episodes as well so stay with us over the next couple of weeks this has been Story time. Thank you to Barrett Cinderason for stepping into the breach once again, and uh, thank you to you for listening this far in the episode. We'll see you soon.